0: Welcome to IndieDotes, the podcast that shares the stories of independent creators. I'm your host, Susan Bond. Today on the show, we have Andrew Nesbitt. He's a software developer who develops libraries.io, and he basically solves problems around discoverability in open source and is also looking at things around sustainability. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's talk about how, it sounds like your work these days is pretty focused on open source.
1: Yeah, I've been kind of swirling around the open source for the sake of open source uh, kind of area for about two to three years, I guess. Uh, I, I stumbled on it back when I started a project called 24 per Request, which I think is about four years old now. Uh, that's basically a, almost like, uh, advent calendar at Christmas, but instead of you receiving things, you give gifts of code back to the open source projects that you have used and benefited, benefited from for the past year. And you try and send 24 requests, uh, in 24 days running up to Christmas, which turns out to be really difficult, but, uh, has, has kind of picked up a nice amount of momentum and actually uh, enabled a lot of people to uh, make their first kind of put their foot in the door of contributing to open source. That's so great. It's
0: still going on, right?
1: Yeah. So we run it every year. It starts first December and it ends on Christmas day. Uh, and then the whole project kind of shuts down and goes into stasis for the rest of the year before, uh, December comes back around again.
0: Oh, that's great. We'll make sure to have a link uh, a link to that. I'm definitely familiar with that project. So that's kind of how you got in, involved in it in a few years ago. And and how did, I know today we wanna to talk about uh, libraries.io or as we'll refer to it throughout our conversation, libraries. How did that come about?
1: So to follow on from 24 pull requests, one of the difficult problems with that project was actually kind to trying to suggest projects that people should contribute to. So if you, if you're going to say to someone try and send 24 contributions to open source projects, that can be quite overwhelming and it can be difficult to know which projects are open to the like contributions from new people, as well as actually being kind of friendly and, uh, and generally nice to work with, which led me to kind of step into this world of discovery which has lots of different meanings in different places but in open source specifically it's about highlighting projects that have good uh kind of attributes to them as well as a good community around them and to basically work that out it requires collecting a lot of metrics on a lot of open source projects that is kind of where libraries ended up being created, I wanted some way of knowing which projects, which open source libraries are good, but for good being a measure that's kind of difficult to to pin down, especially when it comes to software.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I'm curious about. What, how do you define, um, you said, you know, uh, you wanted it to be discovery to highlight projects with good attributes and good communities. Can you describe how you think about those or what the parameters are in the way that you've defined them?
1: So rather than pick out each individual attribute that we think is good, we kind of flip it on its head and look at how Google uses its page rank algorithm, which is essentially kind of looking for websites that link to other websites and the sites that have the most links to them are considered to be link worthy, uh, and trustworthy to a, to a certain degree. If, if the BBC is linking to your website, the BBC obviously thinks that your content is link worthy and is, uh, good enough for the, the readers of the BBC's website to actually go and visit that. And we can use the same kind of metrics, uh, in the open source world. It's just that rather than links, we can use dependencies. So when we look at, uh, individual libraries, often, uh, a library will be depended on by another library or another open source application. So what libraries does is indexes every piece of open source software and all of the other pieces of open source software that they're built on top of. It Hmm. then uses all of those links between those open source projects to work out an idea of usage. And then we use the usage to infer everything else. So we'll say this project, say Ruby on Rails, is used by over 100,000 other open source projects. And often those will be Ruby on Rails applications that have been open sourced. Things like libraries uh, itself and 24 Requests are both Rails apps, and they have a dependency on Ruby on Rails. So we can actually infer that Ruby on Rails must be a reasonably good project if a lot of people are using it. The documentation must be good enough that people have been able to understand how to get started and to actually build on top of it, and we know that it's still working because they haven't removed it or uh, kind of deleted the project. Like. Ruby on Rails is still providing value to them. So they still have it as a dependency. That gives you a really good indication that the project is dependable and can be suggested to other people.
0: Ah, and so does that, what about this idea of good communities? Is that wrapped up in that, or is there a separate sort of concept that? So you evaluate that.
1: We, at the very highest level, we use, uh, the kind of the usage to infer that there must be a community around it. There's definitely a community of users, but we also then drill down into some of the different kinds of specific measures around the people that are involved in the project. So things like how many people have ever contributed to that project. And that can be difficult to measure for non-code contributions, but for actual code, we can look at the number of unique contributors and the amount that they've contributed over time, as well as the, the kind of activity on the issue trackers, uh, on GitHub issues or different bug trackers to go, oh, it looks like there are lots of people actually reporting issues. Their issues are being responded to and potentially even being fixed within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, those all give you a good indication that there are active people around the project that. May be able to help. In 24 pull request case, we're looking for projects where a pull request has been responded to within, say, a week uh, on average, and that uh, any open issues have at least had at one response to them. So it's not a lot of kind of questions that have gone unanswered.
0: Right. So, so if, let's say, someone is new to contributing to open source or new to the project, it would be really disheartening if they, you know, put something out there and then it was just like a ghost town and they never got anything back.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what happened to the first year of 24 pull Requests. There was loads of people that are opening pull Requests on whatever repos that they they uh, thought were interesting, but they all came away kind of, well, I opened the pull request, but it never actually got merged and never got a response because there was no one on the other end to actually... Uh, to help kind of tell me if that was even a good piece of code, let alone merge it into the project.
0: Right. Which is incredibly disheartening and can take people away from wanting to contribute to open source.
1: Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that it was, uh, we were suggesting good friendly projects that had responsive maintainers, uh, the, the kind of knock on effect of that is you then start to measure how much time people are volunteering to the project because most of those maintainers are not being paid for the time to review each of those pull requests, to respond to each of those issues that people are opening. And that's actually quite a big ask of every maintainer as well.
0: Well, absolutely. I want to, um, before we go on more to that, I want to kind of go back to something, which is interesting, because the idea of what a good community is, uh, so the way that you look at good community is number of unique contributors, you know the activity on in, you know issues and bug trackers, responsiveness, all those kinds of things, but it doesn't say anything about, let's say that the tenor or the tone of the communication within that open source project.
1: No, so we've not gone deep on analyzing the individual humans in uh, in libraries.io, partly intentionally and partly due to the technical limitations. What we didn't want to build as part of libraries, which was definitely intentional, uh, was any kind of form of judgment on the people behind the projects. You are not your code. And if we were running, if we've indexed something like 30 million open source projects, we'd be able to build a fairly good picture of any individual user and compare them to other people. But that feels like nothing good comes out of trying to build like an open source leaderboard of maintainers.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I wanted to bring that out because I think, again, it's this idea of how do we describe things and what do we mean by good? It makes sense that you didn't. I think that would definitely lead you into a lot of...
1: There's definitely some things around the governance of a project that uh, we're trying to measure. So things like, does it have a code of conduct? Does it have a file... Mm for introducing new contributors, which on GitHub, there's a a kind of standard file name for uh, that file, which is called contributing.md. If you have one of those in your repository, then GitHub will show that to anyone who is going to open up a request or respond uh, to open an issue or file a bug report as a way of showing here are the steps that are particular for how to interact with this project or this community around this project. And that's usually a really good sign that someone is thinking about the incoming people to the project rather than just saying kind of, I put this open source out into the world and I'm not assuming that anyone else is going to want to work on it with me.
0: Right. So um, I just wanted to be clear. Did you, so the, you know, this file that introduces new contributors to the project, and then whether they have a code of conduct is that part of the process of what you look at or no
1: yeah so we it is. Uh, for every repository that we index we check to see if those files are present and then we're watching for as as much as possible when those projects change to check if those files have appeared uh, we're not looking at the contents of those files right now uh, really, just looking for kind of the indication that there's something there. And similarly, uh, having a license on the project is really important because it's actually a, a strong sign that it is an open source project that you are actually legally allowed to use. That's kind of the uh, the very low bar to it being open source is that it has a standard open source license that you're able to use. And there's a few other files in there that I can uh, send you over a link. For the show notes that
0: yeah great yeah we'll we'll add this to, to the show notes so it's more like a, a checklist of things that you're looking that they need to meet this it's a bar yeah so um... we've
1: got a bar of uh certain attributes that the repository has and a repository kind of being a the central nexus point for all of the output from the community And then we have the usage metrics, which align with those. So kind of, if you've met enough of the basic criteria, you have a license, you have a code of conduct, you have a contributing MD, then the usage metrics are kind of like a multiplier on top of that.
0: Oh, interesting. Got it. And so when you are thinking about this whole discoverability, let's say, um, and you're thinking about good, you know, let's say I you know, we're active, we've got a number of unique contributors, but I don't have a file to introduce new contributors, and I I don't have a code of conduct. You know, how would you, you know, do you, are you grading people? Is it in or out? Do you know what I mean? Is it a more binary system, or is there sort of a descending order? How What's that information look like someone who might be interested?
1: So as it's shown on the library site, we have, uh, we call this kind of, some of all of the, the different parts, a it's source rank. So a project has a source rank in the same way that Google has page rank. And it would used to say, it used to give you a number between 0 and 10 for your page rank for your uh, particular domain name. Uh, for our projects, we have a source rank. And it comes out between somewhere 0 and 34, which is a little strange. And we're going to be changing that at some point to something kind of more percentage based, I think, but the idea being that uh, different attributes that you have or you don't have will contribute towards that score, different score, different attributes having bigger weights than others. So if you're missing uh, a license, then you can lose five points essentially, uh, which is really significant. And if you have a code of conduct, you're gonna get an extra point. If you have a contributing MD, you're gonna get an extra point. If you have uh, more than one person has ever contributed to the project, that's a really good sign. It's also a good uh, measure of the bus factor, which uh, to it's, it's kind of a morbid name, but the idea being that if uh, someone got hit by a bus who was involved in the project, can the project continue to run without them?
0: Right. I think of that as, is there a single point of failure? Yeah. Right. Which is that what that is, um, because a, a single point of failure is just death to any project, right? If something happens.
1: Yeah. And there's different levels of that as well. So you'll have the, the single point of failure of can anyone else merge pull requests? Uh, and can they administer the GitHub repository? And then when you've got projects that are published to a package manager, that's not necessarily the same people who have the administration on GitHub have the ability to publish a new release. And when there are security or license issues, often that can be uh, a real nexus point for issues for the whole community where no one can publish this new release to their package manager, even if the bug has been fixed and it requires everyone else who use that project to, to essentially switch to a a different project or to root around it and to use a fork of that project, which can be, uh, really hard to communicate out to the whole community of, of users. And then you also have the, uh, I guess it's kind of like knowledge sharing, um, weakest link of there's only one person who understands this particular part of the code base, how can, like, it's going to take me a long time to learn how that worked, uh, because of potentially, especially with projects that are, have say, uh, strong elements of cryptography, it can be very difficult to, uh, to share that knowledge.
0: Yeah, I have like about a million questions. Okay, this is so exciting. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, I have so many questions. So I want to go back to one thing you said in terms of these numbers. So what it would be a good number? How would I know? What would might be a good number for a project that might say, okay, this is a, a pretty good project for me, you know, it meets a lot of these criteria that libraries have set out.
1: Well, so that's slightly dependent on the ecosystem that you're looking at. Uh, mm, okay. Which isn't ideal. Um, the source rank as it stands has a number of issues that we, we do have um, kind of an ongoing uh, bug list for it, that we're kind of planning a source rank version two that tries to kind of normalize this out and make it so that you can compare across any different ecosystem. But when you compare say a JavaScript project uh, to something maybe in the scientific community written in R, When you try and compare the, say, the amount of usage or the amount of contributors, there's just going to be a lot more people involved in a JavaScript project or the potential for a lot more people compared to uh, in the scientific community. There's just a lot less developers who uh, are going to be available to contribute to that code.
0: Right, so you have a smaller N. Yeah. Yep.
1: So right now, libraries does a bad job of comparing those things uh, between ecosystems so you you really kind of want to filter down to. And libraries lets you on most search results and most pages lets you focus on a particular ecosystem. So you can say, I only want to look at JavaScript libraries right now. And usually you, you have an idea of what uh, language or runtime you want to, to solve your problem in because you've already got some code written in that. And then you can start to compare them and it shows you a breakdown for each individual field as well as the overall score, so you can drill into kind of going working out which is which. And libraries is going to order everything by that score and put the the things with the best scores at the top, uh, without you needing to do any work to kind of decide which things you should be comparing.
0: Yeah, got it. So, so I could compare apples to apples, so to speak. I could narrow down by in JavaScript. Versus looking at JavaScript versus another language, like we talked about, and that might give me a little bit more context, take away some of that context language dependence um, for accuracy. But then it sounds like I can also, I could also go down and look at maybe if I'm particularly interested in one factor over another.
1: Yeah. So you can see for each project, we have a an individual page which shows you the full breakdown. And it shows you the the raw numbers and the outputted scores uh, that libraries has used uh, its algorithm or it's not really an algorithm. It's a very simple uh, set of rules to to turn those raw numbers into the source rank score. And all of that is open source as well, which I think is very important for transparency sake. You can work out what is going on under the hood. Whereas something like Google's PageRank they are intentionally kept hidden because they don't want people to work out oh if i do this particular thing then i can rank higher in our case we're trying to expose these metrics are good so if you can make your project do more of that then you're going to rank better because hopefully that will encourage projects to do the right thing and which often means building a better community or at least uh, building the, the, putting the pieces in place to allow a better community to exist around it.
0: Mm, yeah. That, that makes a ton of sense to me. Now, here's another question I have, it kind of relates to all of this, which is you said there's multipliers. So some things maybe are weighted more heavily. How did you figure out what to weight more heavily that are more multiplier factors?
1: So this uh, was mostly based on my own personal experience of investigating a lot of open source of building libraries and my other open source projects. And what I've seen when researching this for 24 pull requests to be able to, to pull kind of, uh, all of the projects that people have contributed to compare them and to look at the success of the pull requests that were sent and then kind of roll back and go, okay, well, it looks like the projects that had these factors were uh, were better overall or had more requests uh merged in than the ones that weren't and to try and kind of reverse engineer it from projects that i knew were were good projects or projects that i knew were not bad but potentially either dead so there's there's no one there uh, deprecated which basically means this project is explicitly been stated as it no longer works or uh, is going to work uh, or unmaintained where the state, it may work, but the maintainer has basically said, I'm not doing anything on this project actively.
0: Mm, Got it. Okay, so some of your experiences helped you build in Multiplier. And, and just remind me what might be, what are some of the biggest multipliers that, you know, factors that you have?
1: So the the biggest one that we have is the usage that we see across open source. So that's other open Hmm. source projects that directly or indirectly depend upon, uh, that project is the strongest, uh, metric that we have. then we look at the. Uh, other projects within the ecosystem that also link to those so you've got this kind of two tier of open source repositories which generally are going to be applications things that people are actually using and running and then you have libraries which are individual pieces that make up those applications and the connections between them are going to be usually defined in the same way, but have slightly different weighting. So, if an end user is using a library, that's a really strong signal that uh, it has proved some real utility for that particular uh, user. But if a library is depending on another library, then that actually ends up being uh, much stronger because other people are being kind of given that particular dependency without ever asking for it. It's called a transitive dependency. And so it is when I choose to use a particular library, I'm also choosing to use the dependencies that that maintainer chose to use within that library as well. And I don't really have a choice in the matter there. So the, there's a trust element and a, a kind of ends up being quite a multiplier for the amount of usage. If a really popular open source library adds your library as a dependency, you're going to be added to loads and loads of applications, both open source and closed source overnight. Potentially you could see many, many more people, uh, coming to your project and reporting bugs or even trying to contribute to your project because suddenly you've been inserted directly into all of their applications.
0: Oh, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. I love this idea too, of a transitive. Dependency, that's a
1: new concept. Yeah. So that gets really, uh, kind of interesting as, uh, those things build on top of each other because each dependency can have more dependencies and the size of the amount of people then that are involved in your um we call it a dependency tree for your particular open source or closed source application often you'll have a tree of dependencies stepping down each level has uh, more libraries potentially that then bring their own dependencies in which ends up being your application is being built on a lot of individual pieces that make all of those uh kind of individual functions work each one being maintained probably by a different person which then introduces more potential weak points into your, uh, the kind of the hidden layer that is making your application run.
0: That's what I was sort of thinking. I was like, that's incredible amount of community and not quite a house of cards, but a little bit of like, oh, there's some risk there.
1: There's definitely some risk there. Uh, that's kind of one of the aspects that we looked at on top of libraries is can we use this data to help encourage people to use uh, to software that we consider to be better in not only uh, directly in their projects, but in other libraries so that uh, they can avoid the risk and the risk won't necessarily be uh, directly as soon as they install the thing. It could be, they could have picked up a, a library that has a security issue that is kind of been reported and they, they didn't notice it, but it's much more likely that the problems will start to show up as it goes forward. So that could mean that, uh, the project, uh, one of your transitive dependencies has a licensing issue or a security issue. And there's no way that that can be fixed directly because the person that was maintaining that particular transitive dependency has gone away, uh, or has just decided they don't want to do open source anymore. How do you root around that and fix that when it's jammed deep inside your dependency tree is a tricky issue.
0: Yeah. My mind is a little boggled. (laughs) It's like, wow. Yeah, that's a thing.
1: So it can get quite, quite, uh, tricky to actually kind of unpick that. And rather than try and solve it at the technical level, we're trying to push it to uh, kind of the people level instead, and highlight the projects that have good governance, good uh, practices around getting more people on board, and trying to reduce the bus factor. Means that those uh, each one of those projects is hopefully less likely to run into issues, and if they do run into issues, there's someone there to to help to fix those things.
0: Right, right, A- absolutely. So, how are folks using? library what are some of the the use cases that you see you know how i I mean you know just specific ones i'm not sure how broad it goes
1: so the main use cases will be the people that are searching for uh, a particular library to solve a particular problem that's probably the most standard one often people are coming through from google uh, and landing on a project page which then they might see that library says oh there's there's some problems with this particular, uh, library. You might want to go to this one instead. And
0: ah, so you make, do you make suggestions? Uh,
1: occasionally it's not as good as it could be, mm. uh, okay. but often the search engine will be the next port of call. So someone will land on a project and go, oh, this one doesn't look great. Uh, I will go do a search for the same thing that I was going to search on Google and Google didn't really know what to, Google gave me the best match based on the, the words I typed in, it didn't know any context of kind of how software gets used. And I haven't found a way to tell Google yet, which pages are more interesting than other pages, uh, yep. that is kind of the, the main use case of the site, but we also have, uh, a number of those kind of different ways that you can slice and dice the data to see interesting facts about a particular project. And often those are useful to maintainers. So maintainers can then see other people that are using their code and seeing the ways that they're using them and as well, the versions that they're using. So they might yeah. realize that not everyone is, is running on the latest version. Uh, and there might be a, an underlying reason there. Maybe they broke compatibility with something and no one is able to upgrade. So that can actually give them kind of a extra information that would be otherwise very difficult to pull out or someone would actually have to come and report that so you can be proactive with your search for how people are using your software because we connect the dots and then show you here are all the dots that we connected
0: yeah yeah so i i I feel a lot of it is proactivity right about the biggest use cases you know for maintainers to understand maybe some underlying issues and then as someone who maybe wants to use something to make sure that before I use it, I am maybe looking at what might be the best community, uh, that, ha- you know, the best application that has community.
1: Yeah. And then right. the other big use case that we've been focusing on for the past year has been, uh, researchers. So we have a very rich data set that people can actually delve very deeply onto, uh, to research behaviors and patterns within communities and compare them against other communities. This work's been funded uh, by a joint grant between the Ford Foundation and the Sloan Foundation for us to uh, to build out a load of infrastructure around being able to uh, ensure that as much kind of good quality data has been uh, collected and then release that as open data so that researchers can go away and Uh, kind of take basically the whole data set offline, work on it and produce, uh, interesting papers and research off the, off the back of that focused specifically on scientific computing and on, uh, sustainability in open source. That is so fascinating.
0: I had chills talk about that um but so what's interesting to me is that the original reason why you created this in some ways was the impetus of 24 pull requests which was people trying to find projects to contribute to is not a big way or use case for library
1: no so i didn't want the two i didn't want libraries to eat 24 pull requests Uh, (laughs) that's good (laughs) and so libraries can provide data back to 24 Requests. we have a fairly comprehensive API and libraries pulls uh, libraries provides data in a fairly agnostic way. 24 requests can then go and check the source rank for each project, as well as the individual breakdowns for those, uh, things and decide how it wants to use them. So the way that we often kind of treat libraries or talk about libraries is that it's a fairly agnostic, raw data source of, open source metadata, and then it has a discovery tool built on top of it, which happens to be the library's kind of web interface, which has an opinion about how, uh, software is, uh, kind of useful from a discovery point of view, but other people can build other kinds of lenses on top of that data. And they can take the different attributes that they think are important and make those more visible. So 24 pro Requests looks much more at the contributing factors rather than the uh, the usage factors and it says okay well for the subset of projects that i care about let me order those by the ones that have uh, the most likely to respond to a per request
0: that makes a ton of sense so uh, and i don't know how many folks are using libraries i don't know what the the metrics you use to look at Folks who are using your oh, so
1: libraries? I think it's serving about a million HTTP requests a day. Uh, wow. So it's fairly large. It uh, costs a reasonable amount in uh, server infrastructure to keep all of that working. And I think something like 300,000 unique visitors a month uh, last time I looked.
0: Wow. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good side.
1: The Most of those users are going to be anonymous uh, they're, or they're the users that are pulling things from the API. And we have about 15,000 people that have logged in and generated an API key. Uh, I think nowhere near as many people are actually using the API as that. But we also have uh, all of the data being out in the open that it's really hard to measure actually how many people are using that in different places because all of the data is released under creative commons. There's no need to, to come back and tell us that you're using it. You can just, as long as you uh, persist the license with the data, then people can do whatever they want with it. So that's quite hard to, to put an exact measure on it.
0: Yeah, that 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 may, I, I totally get that 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 makes sense. So, how long have you been working on libraries?
1: Uh good question. I want to say it's coming up to three years since the first commit. The and we've been both uh, myself and Ben Nichols uh, have been working on it for almost a year under the grant. So our grant finishes at the end of 2017 and, uh, we've been working on it full time for, uh, that period to try and reach the, the goals of the grant.
0: Yeah, that's, so that's, um, that, That's has of my question. So right now, is this your full time?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So spending, uh, 95% of my time on libraries. And then, uh, doing some work around the side of it. Uh, we have a tool, uh, built on top of it called dependency CI, which is, uh, kind of a compliance tool that we're experimenting with. It's not quite. We've not really had the time to put into the, uh, the amount of effort that Customers are going to need to actually start being able to to use that as much as we'd like, mostly because people who really care about open source compliance are big enterprise users and big enterprise users want to run uh, their software on kind of behind the firewall on premise. Right, uh, right. And Depend CI has... Uh, direct links to the library's API, which makes it really hard to install and run inside of a firewall without talking to the library's API. So we've not had the resources yet to be able to do that. I'm hoping that we'll have uh, something there kind of starting next year to be able to actually like really get that project going a little bit more because it's got some really interesting uh, responses when we rolled it out. We just never had the resources to be able to follow it through.
0: Yeah, so um, I want to go back to this whole idea. Do so you have funding? Um, how did you get that funding?
1: So we got an introduction from Nadia Ekbal to uh, the Sloan Foundation, I want to say a year and a half, nearly two years ago. Uh, Were
0: you clear you wanted to get a grant, or or was it like it mentioned? Someone mentioned it, and you happened to get an introduction.
1: Uh, initially, it wasn't the plan, but once we had the introduction and we met uh, Josh from the Sloan Foundation, that became a a very clear kind of possibility for one way to to drive the project without needing to give up any form of control uh, directly. At least we were the ones who proposed what would be done for the grant. So we are kind of just choosing what we would do upfront and then having to, uh, to follow through on those agreements. And it also meant that, uh, we would be able to do everything in the open rather than, um, uh, kind of closing things off and hiding them away, which is often the way that you would turn a project like that into a, uh, profitable business.
0: Well well right so this leads me to a couple more questions uh how were you making money before this like how did you make a living right cuz we let's admit we all have to like pay for i don't know ramen noodles rent or whatever it is um at, at you know so how were you making money before
1: that so i was working on libraries kind of part time mostly evenings and weekends and working as a contractor uh where I would occasionally take a month in between contracts and focus on uh, libraries directly for some of that time. And Dependent CCI was actually one of those kind of month gap projects in between contracts where I developed it in about a month on top of the libraries API before taking on another contract um, after that it was finished.
0: And so now you're not doing contract work the last year under the brand.
1: Correct, yeah, so we've basically right. been uh, both run, both working as self-employed uh, people but invoicing to uh, Brave New Software which is acting as a fiscal sponsor for the project which is a charity based in the US that basically allows the Sloan and Ford Foundations to donate money in a risk-free way and then we act as kind of full-time contractors for the charity working on behalf of the grant.
0: Ooh, fascinating. And what happens when the grant is up at the end of the year, then what will be your income source?
1: So we're working on some uh, ways of making libraries kind of more self-sustaining for the next year and beyond. Uh, I can't talk about that just yet, but I'm confident that we'll be able to continue to work on libraries full time and uh also be able to keep it open source and kind of developed in a, a very similar way than it already is
0: well yeah and i, I am i um right in that you're using open collective
1: so i'm not using open collective for libraries i'm using oh, open okay. collective for a number of my other smaller open source mm. projects including 24 proquest which gets it it doesn't pay for any time on the project but it does pay for the hosting costs uh basically people are donating on a monthly basis small amounts but there's a collection of people that donate to that project and then i invoice against the open collective every month when i get a a bill for the hosting costs and that actually both 24 ProQuests and another project of mine called octobox are paid for entirely by uh, the community of users
0: now, you know what I'm getting at, right? Open source, when I think about sustainability and open source, I think not just about maybe the infrastructure of projects and all that, but the the maintainer and the folks who who often are volunteering on these. I'm always like, well, how are you making a living?
1: Yeah, and often <laughs> uh, they're barely making a living or all right. of the time has been donated uh, from their their own free time, sometimes even kind of... Their work time that they're managing to squeeze it into. Often we see that for many smaller projects, say kind of the long tail of projects, are uh, all going to be donated f- from people who have the the free time and a certain amount of privilege as well to be able to uh, to actually keep those projects running without needing any direct return from them. But that does not work in the long term and. Actually, as uh, Nadia Egbol, uh, who I'm going to keep mentioning, <laughs> uh, she has a brilliant paper called "Roads and Bridges," which goes very deep onto that. Yes,
0: whole, uh-huh. Uh, I've seen topic. it. We'll we'll include a we'll include a link to that, um, on, on the uh, on the on the show notes. It, it, that's why I ask whenever I have folks on the show. Uh, we've had Eric Bolster come on, Mike Haram of Sidekick. Um, We've lots of folks come on to the show, and I'm, it's always a question I'm really curious about, which is there are so many amazing open source projects, but how do we get to again for me true like life sustainability for the people who create these? So I'm always curious about how folks do that.
1: Yeah, we were uh, directly involved in running a conference earlier in the year called sustain OSS or sustain open source, uh, in San Francisco that focused entirely on this particular problem of how do you go further than the current state? Because the current state is not, uh, is not maintainable and we'll see more and more cracks, more and more projects like, uh, open SSL running into issues that actually end up being incredibly destructive for the world economy, let alone right. uh, just the the people involved had no money, but actually the costs of not paying those maintainers can can really compound when lots of projects are using this open source software, but uh, they have big risks off the back of those.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I'll, I'll also look to see if we can get a link to um, the sustained open source conference. Um, again it's a fascination for me and how i love talking with folks like you and, and how they're solving these problems not only the the prop the technical problem but the problems that surround it are-
1: and often that doesn't just mean sustainability for the developer behind the project but actually being able to pay for non-code contributions which are often actually contributed by people who don't have that level of privilege and that level of free time to be able to put into the project so things like governance documentation translation all of the things that actually make that project a lot stronger and a lot uh, more available to a broader audience require money uh, not just volunteered time
0: i'm so glad you brought that up because i think there, in an open source project it's a little bit like an iceberg where you see the tip of it, like maybe the maintainer's time, but underneath that is a whole bunch of other things, other costs, so to speak, that go into that project. And you're right, there are many folks who don't have the privilege to work for free, so, so to speak. So I'm curious about what happens, what's next for Um, libraries is there anything that you can tell us about publicly that's gonna that you're working on next
1: so a couple of big uh kind of features that we're trying to get over the line before the end of the year that i'm hoping will get out mostly complete but from an infrastructure point of view are kind of daunting we've Mm -hmm. been developing uh so currently everything that libraries does is kind of what does the current state of the world of the universe of open source look like? What we've been trying to do is index, uh, all of that state going backwards in time as well. So that's looking for when did an open source project add this thing as a dependency and when, uh, did they upgrade it? Did they remove it as well as what messages? So often these, uh, A thing will be, a library will be added as a dependency when uh, and committed along with a message to say why that's been added or has been updated. What we're gonna try and do is mine all of the Git repositories and all of their history over kind of backwards through 10 years of all open source to try and get a a pulse of usage across each ecosystem for all of open source across all that time.
0: Oh, wow. That's a little project. So from the, from the code (laughs)
1: side of things, it hasn't been too difficult from the infrastructure side of things. That's going to be two orders of magnitude more data than we currently host, and it's already a lot of data that we're currently hosting. So we're still not hosting source code, but we're hosting all of the metadata around those things and trying to format them and normalize them into kind of easy to use, uh, data sets. The, the interesting features that we'll be able to get out of this will be to to see trends over time, either for individual libraries or for uh, ecosystems as a whole. So you'd be able to say kind of looking at Rust is a fairly new programming language and their package right. manager is only a couple of years old, I want to say. Uh, And we'll actually be able to see the usage patterns for that whole community grow over time, back from when it was first uh, kind of instantiated and potentially even be able to line that up with other uh, events that have happened and see kind of cause and effect. But more interestingly, is we can see, if we put some form of investment into this open source, can we measure the result? Uh, rather than just say it's good to have a, a code of conduct can we show that when a code of conduct is added to the project that it all of the positive measures went up uh, at the kind of uh, improving rate if we can do that we can literally be able to measure put money in or put things into projects and see the results that we want to come out the other side
0: That would be really fantastic. I'm really excited by that. What a fun, what a fun possibility.
1: So that's uh, super interesting for Sloan and Ford because they'd be able to, to make a really good case for, we should put money into this scientific software because the last time that we did it, we saw this positive outcome. Uh, you basically be able to make a much better case for investing in open source for the projects that you use or the projects that you care about because you'd have a measurable outcome.
0: Wow. Uh, I, I, Andrew, I, you're just, I'm so, I'm so in awe and so inspired by, uh, what you're, doing by possibilities. Um, I'm so, I'm so glad that you were willing to come on the show today. Um, I've really enjoyed learning more about the way you think about it and what the possibilities are.
1: Thanks very much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed every episode that I listened to of your podcast so far. It's been, uh, really interesting to hear the way that you take interviews with people and kind of drill down to what's actually going on behind the scenes. And a little bit of inspiration for, uh, the podcast that I've started as well.
0: Oh yeah. Let's mention what, what the, what the podcast is that you're
1: doing. So we've been running a podcast called the manifest, which is incredibly nerdy if this episode wasn't nerdy enough already uh, (laughs) that it is a podcast only about package management so that's I think there's a limit of a kind of a ceiling of 60 episodes and we will run out of content but it's been really interesting to speak to the people behind the software that makes libraries work and makes most uh, people's kind of day jobs work where it's, it's the orchestration and the a collection of all of these different pieces of open source and how they work together, which is often maintained by very few people with very little funding.
0: Isn't it fascinating that behind the scenes stories, like I always want to get the behind the scenes, like, how did you do that? And like, I already still have like 10 more questions that we just didn't even have time for (laughs) today that I wanted to ask you, but because I think like that I'm that person, I don't know, when I was growing up, I always remember reading magazines and I would skip through the blah 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 and look for the real person's story, like how did they do this? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like how did they get a job doing X or how did they overcome Y? Because I want to hear the real stories, not just theories. Yeah. Y- about how things really work in
1: the war stories behind some of the, uh, behind the package managers and the way that they ended up in the state that they did is usually the most fascinating piece because you get none of that context. If you go to a package manager's website or you, uh, you look around the source code, there's no reason for the history, uh, kind of why did this end up like this? Oh, because of these three years where we had no money to run any servers. Uh, so we engineered the software to run without servers.
0: Right. It's like you get to understand the decisions. And in some cases, non decisions, because sometimes we don't make decisions because we simply don't have capacity to deal with something. Um, How fascinating. Well, we'll make sure to put a link to the manifest uh, on on the show notes as well. Um, Okay, we should stop talking. I (laughs) can talk to you forever. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank
1: you. Bye.